I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Mark Cloutier is a dream guest, and that's not just because he's the person some of the smartest financial minds in the industry turn to to shepherd and shape their strategic turnaround investments. Mark did an excellent job for Apollo when it owned Brit, and so it came back for more when it acquired Aspen. Anyone looking closely at the continued travails of other underperforming incumbents in Aspen's peer group will soon learn that managing successful turnarounds is far easier said than done. Mark Cloutier knows the insurance industry inside and out and from top to bottom. But what makes him a great podcast guest is his openness and willingness to talk about how the insurance, reinsurance and capital markets fit together and interact with each other. He's also one of the most easygoing people you'll meet. His job must involve huge stresses and strains, but you would never know if you met him. Well, today, you do get to meet him, and together we'll go on a grand tour of Aspen and its place in one of the most dynamic and challenging markets for a generation. Mark's long career and perspective, combined with Aspen's multifaceted business model, bring a really great insight into this jittery and completely plastic market environment. Inflation, industry capital and investor appetites, property cat, specialty in a post-Ukraine world, the explosion in hybrid carriers, how to handle the ESG challenge. There is valuable understanding and a calm authority backing every statement. I can highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting, helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models, designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market, and developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Mark, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Good to see you. It's been a while. It certainly has. Well, you've been busy. I was just perusing through your first half results. Congratulations on those. It looks like from reading those results that most of the heavy lifting is now done at Aspen. In fact, that's something you recently said to a reporter probably after those results were published. What are the finishing touches you feel you've got to do now? Now we're into the more natural or normal mode that a business should be in of continuous pursuit of improvement in terms of quality of the portfolio, the performance, overall performance of the business, continuing to develop the culture of the business. So I like to think of us as a business that's been through significant change, but we'll always be in pursuit of an element of change and improvement through trying to get more efficient, constantly striving to try to get a more efficient state and a more optimal portfolio state. So it's just constantly probing and challenging ourselves. What can we be doing better? And is that how you want the Aspen of today to be perceived to be a progressive kind of business that's always looking to improve its results and be in a process of continual improvement? That's how I would like us to be viewed also as a business that is constantly in pursuit of providing solutions to our trading partners, our distribution partners in both insurance and reinsurance, our seedants in reinsurance, our distribution partners and customers in insurance. We have an interesting 
if you will, tool set at Aspen in terms of the range of platforms, Lloyd's, admitted paper in the United States, non-admitted paper, reinsurance, capital markets capacity. I'd like us to be viewed as a business that sort of brings all of that to the table as an offering to help deliver solutions for our trading partners, as opposed to sort of a more traditional, here's the product we offer, take it or leave it business, right? So has that change been the heaviest lift out of the heavy lifting? I suppose you already had those tools. I suppose what you're saying now is that you like to come with all the tools on the table to make a more holistic offering to clients so you can solve their problems in a variety of different ways, and there might be one that suits them better than another one. Getting the business to present itself as one business within the boundaries that we need to maintain properly, particularly from a reinsurer seat standpoint, but getting the business to present itself as one business with flexibility in the solutions it can provide by virtue of the construct of the business has been a pretty significant shift in the business because the business was very segmented historically. There were times based on folklore here that insurance and reinsurance didn't even talk to each other. Now we have a business that wants to present itself as one business that's able to offer interesting and diverse solutions because of the toolkit that we possess. I was in Monte Carlo earlier in the month, and it seems that there's a lot of change afoot for one one, but it certainly seems to be a market in which innovative underwriters are going to be hugely in demand because there's going to be a lot of restructuring, a lot of change, it seems, or certainly being demanded from the top from the big reinsurers. How happy are you with the situation at the moment? I mean, you buy reinsurance, you sell it. I'm sure you're happier selling reinsurance than you are buying it at the moment. But what's the general landscape at the moment? It would seem to suit a business that you describe. Look, I think the current trading conditions play right into our overall strategy. We are a portfolio management sort of construct where we will bring Again, we'll bring insurance capacity, reinsurance capacity, capital markets capabilities to a situation. And it works both in terms of when we're selling, when we're trying to solve for a a client's needs, but also can apply elements of that toolkit to risk managing our own portfolio when it comes to protecting our own balance sheet through reinsurance structuring, through capital markets, partnerships. So It's a dynamic business that is well-suited to what you just said is a pretty dynamic time. And getting the business to think that way and to think about using the various solutions or iterations of solutions that we've provided to clients to solve for our own risk management and balance sheet management has been another sort of interesting step for us that's really starting to work. So while it's challenging, and we know that the 1-1 renewal this year is going to be a challenging time, we're coming at it from a pretty strong position, one, of decent performance, but two, also having a fair depth now of structuring and using the toolkit that will enable us to weave our way through it probably pretty well. One of the big nuts to crack this year, the most obvious one, is going to be anything with property catastrophe exposure. Again, as a very joined up organization, you're going right up to the capital markets. What do you think it's going to take to unlock some new capacity? And also, I don't know how that might affect your appetite. You know, at Monte Carlo, people were talking about 2006 style market, a 2002 style market, and somebody at a 92, 93 style market. 
which is for property cap very specifically. People don't tend to wheel out those sort of particularly hard market dates. They don't tend to mention those lightly. And they were mentioned quite regularly with different people, brokers and reinsurers. What do you think it's going to take to unlock capital? Because it does seem that capital is on strike up to a point that it's had rather enough of a lot of good stories. It's been told some rather good stories in the last three or four years, obviously, after every year of catastrophes. What do you think it's going to take to unlock some of that, which might be useful to deploy if rates are really going to move? I think it's going to take an element of common and technical sense being applied to the trades. As you look at the undermodel perils and the experience we've had, non-peak zone, the experience in Europe, the experience in Australia, I think in order to solve for some of the needs across the globe, there's going to have to be some sense brought to the trading. I, th- I don't think products of the past and last year's answer is necessarily going to fit this year's equation. So I think looking at conceivably using old methods until we are better enlightened around what the longer term impact of climate change is going to be, and we can more precisely or more accurately model some of these undermodeled and emerging perils that we're seeing. I think some of the old methods of sublimits and some that we've used before when we're learning about a new form of risk should be applied this year. And I think if there's a willingness to trade on that basis, capital will come to the table. Price, it can't just be about price when we're in a moment like we're in right now. It's too dynamic. And I think the shift in sort of climate is such that I don't think solely price is the answer. I think it's got to be an element of common sense risk management applied to it as our learning and as our understanding of the changes that are occurring grows. So more about disaggregating some of the things that have been aggregated and bundled, unbundling some of the things that have been bundled. Would that be a good way of describing it? That would be a very good way of describing it. What about attachment points? Is it fairly obvious that they're just going to have to go up because we've been picking up too much frequency of losses as reinsurers? Yeah, look, I think either attachment points have to go up or the price at those lower levels has to go up. The economics aren't working right now, so something's going to have to happen there. But again, I think it can take structuring. Either structuring can solve for that or some form of rate mechanism to solve for it. The other big talking point at Monte Carlo was particularly the specialty classes in the post-Ukraine war environment. Again, do you think that's another place that's going to be completely disaggregated and unbundled, what had been bundled, particularly as there were lots of marine composite treaties that contain political risk and war and other things? That's one I find really interesting, and, and I think that should happen. If you go back in time in Lloyd's, there have been times in the past where that kind of bundling of exposures, of mixed exposures occurred, and there was some pretty tragic outcomes around that. I think the market is probably, and and this is going to sound strange to say, is probably fortunate that it was the Russia-Ukraine event that revealed maybe some of the flaws in that thinking. Yeah. And if the market responds appropriately and quickly, I think you will see some of that risk get disaggregated. 
which is then going to put pressure on some of those lines of business in terms of their ability to stand on their own as a product or as a client of business. Right. Does that give you more opportunity? Does that make you excited and think, well, these could be classes, standalone classes that perhaps you might want to study going in if they're not being subsidized anymore? Yes, I think that it does potentially represent opportunity, opportunity that you need to approach very carefully. Absolutely, because it doesn't come without risk, obviously. Right. I was wondering why I'm so tired coming back from Monte Carlo. I think it's because I've never talked about so many things and so many mind-expanding things. Well, I grew up with inflation when I was younger, but I wasn't old enough to go to Monte Carlo then in the 1970s. What about inflation? That's another thing we were talking about a lot, obviously, just in very basic terms, that limits are going to have to go up. People are going to have to buy new top layers and we'll see, move their attachment points accordingly. What's your take on inflation? How big a deal is it in your boardroom? There is sort of two aspects to inflation. You know, I think the discussion is slightly different with respect to each. CPI-based inflation is less of a concern, shall we say. I mean, we're pricing for that, and we believe that our rate construct is well-matched to the current circumstance. I think that the impact, it's really quite interesting because it can be considered an opportunity if you think about values and the need for additional limit, right? So the sort of consumer price element to inflation, particularly given you look at our book, we are ever more weighted towards longer tail lines, casualty lines. So a little bit of a less direct impact from that. Not a lot of motor or those classes of business that attract the immediate impact. If you look at the social inflation issue, that is a much more meaningful, I think, for us conversation in terms of trying to respond to how do we risk manage our position against or to deal with some of the trends we're seeing, particularly in the United States around not just nuclear awards, but now nuclear settlements, right? There's been a couple of examples of whole towers just being tendered in circumstances that would have previously been defended and may have brought about a a different result. Being in the longer tail and casualty lines, that is an area of study and concern for us. And how do we respond to that? And how is the industry going to respond to that? That's catching a lot of attention from us. Well, I suppose you've done some big legacy deals, so perhaps you don't have to worry so much about some of the really back years. The easy answer for me is, you know, 19 and prior has got a lot of protection on it. So I'm reasonably comfortable that we're well protected there. It's for me, it's more about what are we doing with the 20 and forward book in terms of how we're writing that book and positioning that portfolio to be risk managed against this trend that we're seeing. Yeah, We are in a very fortunate position of having that historical book pretty well protected, which allows us to sort of focus on, okay, how do we respond to what we're seeing and how can we insulate the go-forward portfolio against these trends? Another corollary of this inflationary impact has been, of course, the quite sharp increase in interest rates in the first half of this year, which of course has then had a knock-on effect in the unrealized losses that we've had to recognize, and you were no exception among many in your peer group in the first half of this year, unrealized losses on your bond portfolio. I want to ask, how does it actually affect you psychologically? We've been in this deflationary environment for such a long time. Did you feel 
more flush with capital as your notional capital increased as the increase interest rates fell over the last decade. Presumably, you don't feel too bad about your notional capital decreasing just because interest rates have started to normalize. It's a great question. Somewhere a while back, you said something about the heavy lifting. If you think about sort of our experience with Aspen and just the timing of Aspen, two well above average nat cap years, a pandemic, and now runaway interest rates. Some guys get all the luck. Yeah, some guys just seem to get all the good fortune lands on them. Look, I wouldn't describe it as a change in risk appetite. What I would try to articulate is clearly we want to manage the portfolio, the business through the moment, meaning we want to make sure that our liquidity position is strong so that we're not put in a position of being a forced seller at a time like this. And so it's more about being attentive to protecting the balance sheet from an emergency draw on the investment portfolio than it is, say, concern for our capital position. But it is happening at a time. Just to kind of take you on a little bit of a different path, Mark, it's happening at a time, again, for us that is not such a terrible time. If you think about the market conditions and you think about volatility, and we're still trying to take volatility down in the performance of this business because that was one of the knocks on the business. So current trading conditions are such that we can grow, conceivably keep the top line flat or or slightly growing and use the current environment to take exposure down to help continue to reduce volatility. I read and hear a lot about, oh, time to lean in and grow, grow, grow in this market. We're in a position, we've proven that we can grow. We've proven that you know we have the support of our trading partners. Maybe the current interest rate moves and interest rate and unrealized gain loss position you know, has us looking at that aspect of our strategy, which is maybe we don't push as much for top-line growth, maybe we push in this environment for reduced exposure in a top line that stays fairly constant or slightly up, right? So it enables us, the trading conditions, I think, are enabling us to risk manage our way through the moment of the unrealized. So you're going to go for more quality than quantity? Right. So pick a chance to improve the quality of the the people you do business with and the price they're paying for what you're giving them. So it is back to the notional investment losses. So it is a psychological effect because, of course, some of these notional losses can become real losses if suddenly there was a $300 billion hurricane tomorrow. One presumes we would have to liquidate some holdings that we, of course, we wanted to hold them to redemption, but now we can't. So we do have to realize those losses sometimes. But at the moment, they're unrealized. We hope they'll stay that way. But I suppose it does affect your psychology. Is that a fair way of putting it? I think you'd be a little bit unrealistic to not be worrying about that. At a moment like this, when there are meaningful, unrealized losses in the portfolio, as a responsible business person, you should be thinking about trying to protect yourself from having to realize being a forced seller at a wrong time. Absolutely. So when do you think we're likely to see a change of control at Aspen? Mark, I'm not very good with prognostications, (laughs) especially about the future. We're continuing to focus on improving the performance of the business, building a great culture, 
and place for people to be. We want to be an employer of choice for folks. So we're focused on that. And the future, if we succeed at sort of achieving what we've set out, our vision that we set out for ourselves three and a half years ago, if we achieve that and get to that state of continuous improvement, the future will take care of itself. I'm not going to speculate it. It's a time right now where, I mean, you know the market, investor sentiment from an IPO standpoint is questionable. There isn't a lot of industry strategic M&A going on. So I'm really not thinking too much about this. I'm trying to just continue to drive a better result for our shareholders, improve the return for our shareholders, and build a strong, healthy, modern company. Well, I'll give you a break on that one then. I won't delve any further. We'll have to read the runes and see how you do and see. Obviously, the weather's always changing, so we'll see in the IPO markets and other things. Actually, an interesting thing that's been going on, a prominent market peer of yours has also seen some similar weather in the way that balance sheet businesses are valued and seeing that it's not a great time to be owning a balance sheet business, that valuations are very much in the doldrums. And they're actually seeking, and and look like they probably will succeed, in turning that business into an MGA and unbundling that business into a balance sheet business and an MGA business. Does that idea appeal to you? Do you think that's likely to be something that's more the exception than the rule? I think for that business and where they were sort of in their development timeline, I can see that making sense. And so I think you have to look at these businesses, each and every one on an individual basis to see whether that type of restructure would provide the right return for everybody involved and the right structure that will continue to create sort of total value creation going forward. As you say, the weather changes. The weather's pretty good right now, pretty sunny around valuations on MGAs. So great timing in terms of enjoying that sunshine on their part, but that too could change, right? So I think this type of a restructure could fit some businesses, and but will also be dependent upon valuations and the weather around balance sheet valuations. With so many facets to Aspen, it might be too complicated, wouldn't it? Because it's not just one balance sheet. There are multiple. It would definitely be more complicated than the current example that everyone's watching right now. Something else has been going on a lot since we last spoke, which was over two years ago. There's been this explosive growth in hybrid fronting carriers. What do you think is driving that? Is it part of the same thing that's been driving that high in valuations of MGAs and other fee-earning businesses? Others have suggested to me that it's been reinsurers, perhaps some of the actual supply pull from reinsurers that may have been behind some of this, that reinsurers wanting to access some of the business that they've, over a long period of time, slowly lost access to. Yeah, you know, we've seen this before. For those of us who were around then, back in the early, mid-90s, there was a sort of an element of reinsurer-driven, what I think people used to refer to as reverse flow business, where an MGA or a program manager would develop a program, find reinsurance markets, and then the reinsurance markets would actually find and or set up a funding carrier to take the program. So I think there is definitely an element of that. 
Yeah, because I'm sort of wondering whether it's cyclical or secular. So you're saying part of it's cyclical, it's happened before, but do you think anything's genuinely new about this to say it might be part of a permanent long-term change? I think it is cyclical. And I yeah. think that as the subject matter expands, okay, as the sheer premium volume and exposure base expands, we're going to need more fronting carriers to handle the business that the reinsurers are trying to do by reverse flow methods, okay? Because the fronting carriers that are out there run into the same sort of issues that we run into in terms of channel conflicts. Ultimately, they get big enough where they start to run into the same kind of overlap channel conflict type issues that we face if we think about fronting as a company. And so I think it's something that, that happens I'm not saying that the the fronting carriers that have emerged aren't permanent features of the business. I think they are a permanent feature of the business. I think you may see a slowdown in the development of that trend, depending on what the insurance and reinsurance market cycle looks like, right? Yeah. So I think that it, it expands sort of in lumps as the sheer volume of trading grows and the market goes through its cycles you'll see the burst of fronting carriers for a period of time. We'll be able to absorb the need that's out there and become a permanent part of the business. But I don't think it is a full-on structural change. I think it's just the sector continuing to mature and grow. Is it changing any of the way that you approach dealing with programs and MGAs and other things, both as an insurer and as a reinsurer? No. Obviously, we have conversations with reinsurers around particular starting up programs that are supporting through, say, reverse flow mechanics, a program or a, a line or class of business that directly competes with us when they're a you know, significant, say, quota share reinsurer of ours, we will scratch our heads and, and ask a few questions about exactly what are you trying to accomplish here, <laughs> as you'd expect us to. But in terms of how we approach the distribution partner, no, it hasn't changed how we approach it. You're looking for MGAs to bring you something new that you can't do yourself. They found a good way of accessing a whole pool of business that you find hard to access yourself. Yeah. One of the other things we've been talking about a huge amount since we last spoke as a market is ESG. How do you view this? I mean, some people are saying it's the biggest opportunity of a generation. Others are also viewing it as somewhat of a threat on the regulatory side. How are you viewing it at Aspen? Well, it's core to the culture we're trying to develop here. We're really emphasizing throughout the business that we are a diverse and inclusive business that has a very deep sense of social responsibility. And so if you think that that is the culture you are growing and are really committed to, the accountability that comes with ESG, so let's say that regulatory side, the accountability that comes with ESG isn't necessarily a bother to you because it should be in your DNA. It should be part of how everybody in the business is thinking about the business. I think there are areas, just staying on sort of that side of the question, the environmental piece and some of the grand statements that are being made around sort of no coal by a certain date and, and this stuff in our sector, I think it's a lot more complicated than some people are implying in some of those statements. And we're enablers to whole economies. And 
if we suddenly say we're going to stop supporting coal on a cliff type basis, the impact of that could be to see some third world economies and societies lose their power and school children without computers and slowing their opportunity to emerge. So we need to be very, very thoughtful. And we're taking a very thoughtful approach around, yes, we're going to work our way towards being a supporter of a carbon neutral sort of world, but we're going to come at it through responsible actions as opposed to big sweeping statements. But then on the other side, we do see it as an opportunity. There should be an opportunity in all of this to support emerging forms of clean energy and clean economies and sustainability. So we see it both as a responsibility, as part of our culture of our business, and as an opportunity. And also, one presumes that as this is going to permeate everything, you'll increase your attractiveness to investors and also therefore lower your cost of capital. The better you are at ESG, the better the score is. One presumes also as a CEO, you can see capital benefits and absolutely better opportunities from an investor point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And probably a broader field to play in in that respect. What do you feel about how well we're doing in terms of advancing a common framework? Because it does seem to be fairly obvious that because this is a totally horizontal and vertical thing, the last time we had something really big on this nature would be something like Solvency 2, but that was just a vertical. And it affected every insurance company that had dealings somewhere in the European Union, which is a pretty much every insurance company worth its salt in the world in one way or another. And it cascaded, had cascading effects. This has got cascading effects with all our customers, all our suppliers, and all our investors, and us, and our own activities as well. Do you think... We're going to need a common framework. It would seem obvious that we do need a common framework, you know, the equivalent of Solvency 2 for ESG to say, well, these are the definitions. This is the way you score things. This is how you measure. These are the methodologies. Do you think we're getting anywhere near getting that kind of common framework, or are we going to end up with one being imposed on us? Well, I don't think we are moving quickly enough towards a common framework. And what worries me is having one imposed upon us or having, for lack of better words, multiple regional regulatory driven frameworks imposed upon us, which will just add a whole nother layer of complexity to our business. ESG sort of adds a layer of complexity to the business. If we default into having frameworks imposed upon us and we end up with a European, a North American or a, a US a Canadian, that level of complexity is multiplied exponentially, right? And we just find ourselves in yet again, because we weren't able to come together on a common framework, yet again in the least efficient environment that we could be in. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be your IT department if you had to fill in 57,000 different forms every time you did something. Exactly. So you're not that optimistic but would be in favor of something being done at the moment. It doesn't sound like you're that optimistic that it's going to happen. Well, on something like this, looking back at the history of our business, what would be my basis for optimism? Yeah, okay. <laughs> in tackling issues like this, right? We're coming at it, as I say, it's part of our culture. So we're coming at it in our way, but we would be very eager to engage in trying to get an industry-led framework as opposed to having a framework imposed upon us. Yeah, so something maybe for the IAIS or something like that to really get their teeth into. 
I remember when we last spoke, it was where well, the riots were raging at the time we, we were speaking after the death of George Floyd and very much brought that BLM movement up into people's consciousness and put diversity and inclusion even higher up the agenda. And I remember that we had a really interesting conversation around that time in that last podcast. So what sort of scorecard would you give yourself in the intervening two years in terms of advancement at Aspen of DNI? Well, we've worked really hard. You know, there's been a sort of a steady stream of initiatives that we've brought to the business from changing recruiting practices to opening up opportunity to demographics that probably historically only found this business, this sector by accident. We're proactively going out and shifting sort of the targeting of our recruiting practices at the internship at the graduate level and even some apprenticeship. So trying to get to folks who may not, due to circumstances, find a college, but may have a terrific aptitude to our business. Employee resource groups in each of our major centers where we're talking with and listening to our employees around diversity and inclusion. So there's an internship program targeted at military veterans, and we've had a number join our business after internships. So we're making great progress. So you're definitely a more diverse and inclusive business than you were? We definitely are. Now, if you put the numbers on a piece of paper, do the numbers thrill me? No. We have some distance to go yet, but you can certainly see the impact of what we're doing and the trend is certainly the right direction is just with the best intentions and efforts in the world this is going to take time particularly to get the diversity we're looking for right through the ranks all the way to the senior leadership of the business the will is there the intention is there the effort is there so it's just going to take time And do you think as an industry, when are we going to start to see that much higher percentage of, let's say, particularly gender balance at the high levels, at the board levels? Another 10 years or? I would expect within, if I look at our own boards, all of the boards that we have and the efforts that we put in to get diversity there, I think at the board level, it should emerge certainly quicker than 10 years. It seems to me that that should be a place where we can impact change fairly quickly. It's growing the talent through the different stages of growth they need to get through to emerge as a senior vice president or an executive vice president and get that executive committee table, let's say. That, to me, is going to take longer. I see our business looking very, very different there in, say, five years' time. I see our board diversity changing and continuing to improve, certainly within the five-year time. I mean, the commitment is very real and it's there. You know, our current recruiting practices, when we talk to recruiters, diversity and inclusion is a core element of what we're looking for in the candidates that they're presenting to us. We challenge them on that. And they actually give us data on the candidate list and we're pushing it that way as well. Plus trying to invite people into the business that historically maybe never found the business. Well, Mark, I've come to all my questions and we're probably running towards the end of our allotted time. I just wanted to thank you for giving up that time. And hopefully it won't be five years before we have another talk. 
I wish you all the best with navigating this very interesting and quite complicated market. And at the same time, with whatever happens in uh, potential changes of ownership at some point in the future. So good luck with all of that over the next year. Thanks, Mark. It's great to see you. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to uh, visit in person, either here in Bermuda or in London in the near future. Always good to catch up with you, man. Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. All the best. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>